This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. I'm Catherine Liss, a Senior Fellow and Director for Immunizations and Health Systems Resilience with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. And for this episode, I'm in Romania, which shares borders with Ukraine. And since the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February of this year has seen more than 800,000 refugees cross into the country, some staying here, others moving on to other parts of the European Union. Now, the challenges that refugees in Romania and Ukrainians at home are facing are immense. The access to food, just one of many problems to be faced. In Ukraine itself, a leading producer of wheat and other essential products for world markets, war has disrupted agricultural activity in some areas, supply chains have been broken, and places where people might have once shopped for food have been destroyed. People fleeing the violence, frequently mothers and children, bring very little with them and need food along with shelter and other essentials. But the disruptions to Ukrainian agriculture and supply chains are having effects well beyond Eastern Europe. In Sub-Saharan Africa, where a considerable amount of Ukrainian grain is sold, limited supplies mean higher prices as well. It's my pleasure today to be joined by Doug Mercado, head of the area office with the World Food Program in Romania. Doug, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, good morning from Bucharest. So you've been here since the middle of March, about three weeks after the conflict in Ukraine started. And as I understand it, World Food Program really didn't have offices here prior to that. So it's been a very busy period of scaling up and making connections and assessing what the challenges are and getting food moving into Ukraine. So I want to talk about that. But first, I'd like to hear a little bit about how you came to work in this crisis, how you came to your work in food security and the experiences that, that you're bringing to your current focus here. Well, I've been working in the humanitarian sector for about 32 years now. My first assignment was in Nicaragua back in 1990, just after the war there had ended. And we were supporting many refugees who were returning home from the neighboring countries of Honduras and Costa Rica. The whole career in international humanitarian assistance has been quite, in a way, unplanned. At the time, I was thinking about working in the field of community development in Latin America. I was working on a master's degree at the University of Texas at Austin in community and regional planning and thinking I would just start doing some community development work with an NGO in Latin America when I finished. But in the summer between my two years in grad school, I went back to work at the Organization of American States in Washington, where I'd worked before on one of their publications as an editorial assistant. And I was just going back that summer to help out with the publication of the magazine. But when I got to Washington, they said, well, as much as we need you working on this publication, can we send you to Nicaragua instead? Because we're involved with the peace process and also supporting the return of refugees now that the Contra War is over. I said, well, I wouldn't mind that. I 
be curious to see what's happening down there. I, I'd never thought about working in humanitarian affairs or, or refugee assistance before. So this opportunity just kind of came out of nowhere. I grabbed it and I went down. I was working trying to help the OAS escort refugees safely back to their homes in Nicaragua so they could start rebuilding their lives after a long and devastating war there. I was involved in arranging the transport, escorting them back to give them a sense of security and protection, organizing distribution of food and basic household items to help them get back on their feet. So it was just for several months. It was a summer job for me and I had to go back to grad school, but it really opened my eyes to this world of humanitarian assistance. I never even thought about it before as a career option, right? And so it just came quite by accident, but it really put me on this path where I've been on now for the last 32 years and have been to any number of crises all over the world, you know, some linked to conflicts, some linked to natural disasters, some linked to pandemics and forced migration situations. And it's just an amazing field where you feel like you are making a difference, no matter which organization you work with. And you're helping people out in a very complicated period of their lives, right? These disasters are are no fault of their own, whether it's conflict or natural disaster, but lives are upended. People need some support. They, They can do a lot for themselves. Even in crisis, people do an amazing amount for themselves and their neighbors and their communities. But still, there's sometimes need for external support. And that's where groups like WFP come in, other aid agencies. We just try and provide people with the support to to help keep them alive in some very critical situations and help get them back on their feet once a crisis passed. So, yeah, that's all led to me being here in Romania all these years later. WP asked me to be involved in their operation for Ukraine here in Romania in March. And I've just been finishing up another assignment. So I was available to come out here and, and lead the team in Romania. So, I mean, as you pointed out, some of the conflicts or some of the crises where you've worked have been long forming. I mean, in Nicaragua, after 11, 12 plus years of conflict, even even more, really. And then others really fast emerging and continuing to develop as you arrive and really begin to, to do your work. As you think about the different contexts where you've had this experience over three plus decades, how does the current situation in Ukraine kind of compare to many of those different situations you've faced? I mean, you've got the backdrop of the pandemic over the past two years and the effects that as a global community we've Mm -hmm. all experienced, then the multiple crises of refugees, the situation on the ground in Ukraine, and of course, the effects that you were talking about in terms of the implications for food prices and and access to food worldwide because of Ukraine's position as an agricultural supplier. How does this situation compare to some of the others that you've faced over the years? Yeah, well, I mean, there's many commonalities between crises, right, where where people are at the center of suffering, whether it's a conflict, whether it's a natural disaster. But, you know, each one is quite unique. And certainly the crisis in Ukraine has its own unique elements. Again, civilians are the center of, of the issue here. People caught up in the conflict and many losing their lives, unfortunately. Many people being forced to leave their homes and all their family and friends behind their assets behind. They flee with little but the clothes on their back, perhaps a suitcase or a backpack they're carrying. So in a sense, yeah, the the human suffering that we see in in Ukraine is something we see in so many other conflicts around the world, whether it's Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, South Sudan, Cameroon. I mean, we can go on and on with the list. Uh, Ukraine is certainly not unique in the sense of millions of people being affected by conflict. But this one is different in a sense, I, I think, for a couple of key reasons. 
Number one is sort of the geopolitical consequence of war that's being fought by one of the world's great superpowers and, and other countries are opposing, I think, you know, Russia in these efforts here. So it's sort of a clash of, of very significant world powers. I think another key uniqueness of, of this conflict here is just you know, regionally and globally, right? The impacts of the war in Ukraine aren't confined to the people directly affected inside the country. We see millions of people fleeing so far. Over 7.7 million refugees have left Ukraine to surrounding countries in Europe, which is having a major effect on neighboring countries further afield in Europe. But also, I think importantly, too, is the impact on food prices around the world. Ukraine uh, is a major producer of food, and that's being blocked right now. The export of that food is being blocked by the conflict. We should note that Russia is also a major food exporter. In between the Russia and Ukraine, they provide about 30% of the world's exports for wheat and about 20% of the world's exports for corn. And food is not getting out of Ukraine because of the conflict, and it's difficult to get food out of Russia right now because of sanctions. And so this is a major impact on the supply of food to other countries around the world. So we are seeing rising food prices, which is affecting everybody, but it's going to hit particularly hard those people that are living on the margins anyhow, people who barely get by with their food needs every month. We're going to see more people falling into poverty, more people falling into food insecurity, millions of people around the world because of this conflict. So of course, we're very focused on meeting the humanitarian needs of the Ukrainians themselves impacted by the crisis, but we have to think about how it's going to impact millions of others in different countries around the world. So you've been here six weeks or so, maybe seven weeks at this point. What have been your biggest priorities as you set up operations and begin moving support into Ukraine? Where are you working with partners? What are the major issues that you're dealing with day to day? So, I mean, for the World Food Program, our our main activity is certainly in Ukraine. We're trying to reach six million people with food assistance in various parts of the country, whether they've been directly or indirectly impacted by the conflict. And since we started our operations in early March, we've reached about 2.7 million people. So we've scaled up fairly quickly, but we have much more to do. But we are expanding our presence throughout Ukraine, opening up new offices in different parts of the countries, establishing new warehouses, building our trucking fleet, procuring more commodities inside Ukraine. But then outside, WP has built up an infrastructure as well to support our operations in Ukraine. We have an office in Poland. We have offices in Hungary, Romania, and Moldova. So here specifically in Romania, we're serving as a pipeline to get food into Ukraine as much as we can, as quickly as we can. And so, yeah, starting from zero, where we had no office, no staff here, no warehouses, no connection to suppliers. We've had a lot to do since we opened up our office here at the very beginning of March. I think one of the most critical things is we had to establish relationships with the government of Romania because they're hosting our presence here. We have to have the permission of the authorities. We received very quickly, I should note. I've been really just impressed by level of support provided by the government of Romania to WFP so we could come in here and operate very quickly, get things moving. But yeah, we had to establish relationships, the right contacts with different ministries that are key to our operation. The Ministry of Transport, you know, be very important because we're using the roads, the ports, and perhaps the railways at some point. So we have to really have the right contacts there and make sure they understand what we're doing and that they're supportive of what we're doing. And they've been very supportive. I should know that. I'm very happy with the way we've been able to collaborate with the government of Romania on our work here, but also making contacts with other UN agencies to coordinate with other UN agencies, with NGOs, to connect with our donors who have embassies here to make sure they're fully informed of our operation. So 
it's building a lot of relationship with key stakeholders that we need to maintain informed of our operations. So it's been a lot of time just, like I said, building the foundations of relationships, but we've also had to go around and map out companies that produce food in Romania because we're trying to procure as much as we can from Romania suppliers. So mapping out the companies that produce the food that we want to deliver to Romania, cutting the contracts, you know, finding trucking companies because we've got to move the food into Ukraine from Romania, building the whole network of contacts and contracts that we need in order to achieve our mission of getting food into Ukraine from Romania. So it sounds like a fair amount of really administrative and contracting work just to yep. be able to move goods from country to country and all the different logistics yeah. that that entails. In terms of the delivery of food on the other side of the border, do you work directly with the government in Ukraine or do you work with different on-the-ground organizations? How does the distribution happen when this, yeah. uh, once you cross well, the border? Well, you certainly have to have a relationship with the government of Ukraine because whenever the World Food Program or other, any other agency works in a country, you have to be there with the permission, the authorization of the host government. So we do have established relations with the government of Ukraine. But in terms of how we distribute the food, the World Food Program often uses what we call cooperating partners. In most instances, these are NGOs, whether they're international NGOs or national NGOs, local NGOs. Sometimes we use the Red Cross, the, the National Society of the Red Cross can be partners. But it may be church groups, for example, like that. Anybody who has capacity and connections to people sort of at the community level, the grassroots level, we try and, and leverage those connections to make sure we can get the food out to the most vulnerable people as quickly as we can. So we are building up a whole network of partnerships in Ukraine to be able to perform and deliver the food that we need to in the country. So as we look at the trajectory of the conflict, I think there was hope early on. You know, you had a number of refugees not wanting to go too far because they were hoping things mm -hmm. would be over soon and they could get back. But we've seen a huge arms build up at this point and not a clear sense that there's an end in sight. What are your greatest concerns over the next, I guess I'd say six to eight months, even if the conflict ends, there's yeah. still quite yeah. a bit of damage and reconstruction that will have to happen. Do you see the role of WFP changing or intensifying over the next middle term period? What are your greatest concerns? Well, first of all, the, the hope is for peace, right? That's the best thing we can do to help the people of Ukraine is to end the fighting and the violence. But that's a bit out of our control as a World Food Program. But we hope that uh, the diplomats, the politicians are going to work towards finding a solution to end the fighting, because that's the number one thing that the people of Ukraine need is an end of the fighting, right? As I said, that's out of our control, so we have to be ready to adjust to the situation as it evolves inside Ukraine to make sure we're meeting the demands. And again, the goal of our assistance is to save lives and reduce the suffering of people impacted by the conflict. So it's very difficult to know how this conflict's going to evolve. Nobody has a crystal ball, but we do try and go through some scenarios, right? Based on information we're gathering and our understanding of the conflict and how it might change over time. And so we have to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Right now, the fighting is concentrated in the east, but could it spread throughout other parts of the country again, become more intense if the fighting moves closer to some other population centers like Kiev, for example, or Odessa? That could cause further displacement of people and some choosing again to cross borders into other countries and become refugees and so forth. So we just have to maintain a very flexible footing inside Ukraine to be able to adapt to the situation as it does evolve. I mean, here in Romania right now, we're not providing any food assistance at all. Um, but if we were to see hundreds of thousands of people come suddenly 
into Romania, I don't know. We'd have to evaluate that situation if the government came to us with a request because they were overwhelmed and other agencies couldn't provide the required assistance. We'd have to take a look at that. But this war could drag on for years. I mean, we see wars go on for decades. Syria has been happening for over 10 years, right? The war in South Sudan has been going on for over, I think, 10 years at this point. Some of these wars just, you know, are long and drawn out and the impact on civilians will evolve over time. So, yeah, I think we have to be flexible. We have to be nimble. We have to have the support of our donors, right? Because all of this takes funding and this will be enormously expensive over time. So we have to make sure we have the adequate support from our donors to make sure we can build a structure that is able to adapt to the situation on the ground. But yeah, I mean, the greatest fear is that fighting will spread and intensify and more people will be displaced because once you're displaced, that's when you become very vulnerable. You can still be vulnerable when you're in your home, obviously, in a war situation. But once you leave your home behind and assets behind, then your vulnerability generally increases significantly. So the biggest concern will be for further displacement. I mean, right now, there's over 7.7 million internally displaced people in Ukraine out of a population of 44 million. There's about 5.7 million who've left the country. So altogether, there's been over 12 million people displaced from their homes. That's a significant proportion of that population of 44 million. So if that increases, if half the population becomes displaced at some point, 22 million people, well, the humanitarian impacts are going to grow exponentially and we'll have to scale up and adjust as best we can to meet the needs both inside Ukraine and outside Ukraine. We've talked about the current state of operations, and of course, you know, Romania is closest to the western border of Ukraine, but there's been considerable conflict and fighting in the eastern portion of the country. Are you able to reach people in need in that part of the country, and what are some of the challenges that you're facing in terms of transportation and access to that region? In the east, it's a much greater challenge for the World Food Program and other aid agencies to reach the vulnerable populations just because of the intensity of the fighting and you have to sometimes cross front lines to deliver humanitarian assistance. So the access challenge is real and we have to talk to all parties of the conflict and we have to negotiate our way to reach some of these populations. So I, I think that's the challenge is to convince the parties to the conflict that they should allow unfettered access to these populations for the World Food Program and other aid agencies that are trying to deliver life-saving critical aid. So. In the West, it's a bit easier because the conflict has not really come to the Western part of the country with such intensity. There definitely are, you know, some direct impacts when there's missile strikes and so forth in the West of Ukraine. But in the East, that's where I think we're having the most difficulty again, because that's where most of the, the direct fighting is taking place right now. We have to talk to all parties of the conflict to convince them to allow us to move through the lines of conflict to reach people that are perhaps in some of the cities that are besieged encircled or just suffering the effects of direct attacks. So it's dangerous for aid workers, obviously. You know, we don't want any of our staff to be harmed in the process. So we have to make sure we notify the parties of the conflict of our movements and make sure they understand that we are in a certain area and therefore should not be dropping missiles and bombs and so forth as we're trying to get in to assist those areas. And so does that mean negotiating directly with the Russian military on the ground or do you deal with 
with Moscow and headquarters. All aid agencies have to speak to whoever is on the ground, right? You have mm-hmm. to speak to the local commanders there to get through the checkpoints. They're the ones that control access, obviously. But I think the United Nations in general has had liaison with the Russian authorities in Moscow, trying to establish the parameters on how we operate inside Ukraine so we can move safely into areas that are at the center of the conflict right now. So yeah, you have to operate, I think, both at the central level. We have direct dialogue with authorities you know, in Moscow, but also in Kiev with the Ukrainian uh, government. And also you have to have contact with commanders on the ground as you move closer to the areas you want to assist with humanitarian aid. So at this point, the invasion happened February 24th. It's now the middle of May. We don't know how long this conflict will go on. This escalation of arms and intensification of fighting in some areas. But we know that there's been considerable destruction of infrastructure. And as so many people have either been displaced within the country or have left the country altogether, who may be seeking to go back once the conflict is over. How do you see uh, World Food Program operations extending beyond the ceasefire or the end of the conflict? What would you anticipate in terms of a future commitment and future needs of the, the country? Even after the war ends, and hopefully it'll end soon, the violence will stop and people can start returning home, right, to rebuild their lives. The level of damage and destruction has been incredible just in the last two months since the war started. In terms of physical infrastructure, you think of you know, homes or hospitals, schools, but also road, bridges, destruction to agricultural infrastructure. I mean, the, the, the impacts are far and wide. Even when the war ends, there'll be huge needs on the humanitarian side. So I think the World Food Program certainly will be involved in Ukraine's recovery, as will a number of humanitarian organizations. How long will need to be involved? It probably is an open question. Uh, you know, I can think back to my time in Bosnia where I worked with the World Food Program just after the war. And we needed to, to remain in place in Bosnia for three years after the war ended to provide food assistance to vulnerable families, both those who stayed in Bosnia during the war, but also the many refugees who were returning who came back with very few assets and they needed some form of support while they get back on their feet, while they rebuild their homes, rebuild their livelihoods as well, and can start taking care of themselves. So certainly there will be a significant role for the World Food Program and other aid agencies in the recovery phase, but we need to get to that first, right? And so hopefully we will see an end of the fighting, a ceasefire, a peace agreement, so we can start on that road to recovery, which will be long and hard in and of itself. But For the time being, the conflict continues and we'll stay focused on delivering humanitarian assistance in a conflict setting. So I think you mentioned earlier, and I neglected to say it in the introduction, but you teach at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. And I wanted to ask what advice you give to master's students like you were years ago when you kind of happened upon this career somewhat by accident or maybe serendipitously because you were you were already interested in a region that had been experiencing conflict but really had this chance to, to work yeah. in Nicaragua. What advice do you give people who are actively inspired by the kind of work that you're doing and thinking about moving into this kind of career track? The key message I try to leave them with at the end of the course is like doing good ain't easy. From a distance, it looks like it's an easy problem to solve. Oh, people are displaced from their homes. They need food or they need health care. They need water. Oh, we'll just give them food and health care and water. Well, if it were so simple, right? Because there's many stakeholders involved. What I'm really trying to do, I think, through my course is like help them map out the stakeholders. 
who can sort of possibly impact an effort to deliver humanitarian assistance? What are their interests? Will they support efforts to reach people with necessary humanitarian aid? Or will they try and obstruct or block the humanitarian assistance because they have other agendas, other objectives, right? So I really try and impress upon them that I think this can be for any kind of problem you're trying to solve in the world, right? It's like sometimes the answers seem relatively easy, but you've got to consider all the stakeholders and what their interests are and whether they'll be allies or opponents in your efforts to try and achieve what you're setting out to do, which in my case is delivering much needed humanitarian aid to vulnerable populations. So yeah, I think that's sort of the the key message of the course is like try and figure out who's involved, who could be involved. And how do you get them to come together to work towards common cause, common purpose of achieving your goal of reaching vulnerable people with much needed humanitarian aid? So, yeah, that's it. But I do try and convince them about maybe pursuing a career in humanitarian assistance, because I think a lot of students don't see it really as a a career opportunity. I think maybe we don't do a good enough job amongst humanitarian agencies of going around and recruiting at colleges and letting people know that there are these possible career paths, you know, with humanitarian agencies and agencies that play different roles, whether it's UN agencies like the World Food Program or donor agencies like U.S. Agency for International Development or various non-governmental organizations, like you've heard of Médecins Sans Frontières, perhaps, Save the Children, many, many NGOs. You've got the Red Cross system, the International Committee of the Red Cross, the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Cross. And so also I try to expose them to some possible opportunities to go out there and join the efforts to try and address these humanitarian issues. At the end of the day, I think every humanitarian would like to think that the work we're doing will put ourselves out of a job, right? We don't want to be necessary, right? We wish that our whole profession could just disappear and that there weren't any kind of disasters, whether it's conflict or or natural disasters. But I don't think we're seeing any increase in in conflicts that impact millions of people around the world. Climate-related disasters are going to be, you know, on the rise over the years. And so... Unfortunately, this is a growth industry right now. I think we see more response, which requires more funding, which requires more people and so forth that are ready to, to join the effort. So, yeah, I, I try and like show them that there are important things to be done in the world. And if you want to go out and make a difference, this is one area you could dedicate yourself to and feel like you're making some contribution. So it sounds like you're saying, look, keep your eyes open, understand who all the the different players might be, where are there ways to align interests and bring in additional contributors and... There's plenty of room for yeah, for yeah. more people to, to and also contribute. make them clear that there's things you can do in the humanitarian world that also cause harm, right? Just because somebody needs food, there's not just one solution, right? There may be some solutions in your mind where you think you're helping people, but you create more harm than good, right? So it's like try and understand the impacts of what you're doing. Look before you leap, I guess, is what mm-hmm. I could say, because there may be some unintended consequences sometimes of your acts and your program. So. It's a very complicated world, right? It's not so clean and simple as we'd like to believe it is. Well, I just want to go and hand somebody some food or, or give them some medicines and I, I've changed the situation. You've got to think about, once again, what other interests are involved and how what you're doing might have some side effects you didn't anticipate. Well, as we've discussed, it's a complicated situation in Ukraine and here in Eastern Europe, where so many countries are supporting Ukraine, receiving refugees and hosting organizations like World Food Program to to really manage logistics and, and operations on the ground. We've talked about the many challenges and the hard months ahead, regardless of when the conflict itself actually ends, the reconstruction and and issues that will occupy so many people for the foreseeable future. But I wanted to ask 
you to reflect on what in this experience gives you hope or what's the biggest bright spot that you've seen coming here and really standing up this office and working with so many people? No, I mean, I think when you when you go into a crisis and especially maybe in a conflict situation, you often see some of the most horrible things you will ever witness in your life, right? The suffering and sometimes the cruelty of human beings towards other human beings. But you also see the most remarkable things as well, things that sort of are uplifting that kind of remind you that human beings can be a force for good as well, right? I mean, here in the Romania context, I think what's been really amazing is seeing how the people of Romania have rallied to support the refugees who come over from Ukraine. They've been amazingly supportive, offering their homes, giving people shelter, providing accommodation. They've been offering food, providing health care, just basic hygiene needs, you know, clothing. If, if you refugees bring over children, they bring over like supplies for babies and so forth. Just an outpouring of support from the people of Romania towards Ukrainians, which isn't necessarily a given in, in a situation like this, right? Sometimes there may be hostility towards refugees in some countries, but just the, the amazing level of assistance provided by the government of Romania and the people of Romania has just been awe-inspiring. But also just the strength and resilience of the Ukrainians. Here in Romania, the World Food Program is not providing direct assistance to refugees because others are taking care of that. They just describe the government and Romanian civil society. But every now and then we do come across some Ukrainian refugees when we're visiting some centers here. And just the strength and the resilience of the Ukrainian people, the refugees, it just shows you how strong people can be because they've left everything behind. They've lost so much and they're heading into a very uncertain future. But just looking at them, engaging them, it's just you see the strength and resilience and the determination to manage this somehow. And so that shows me the inner strength of people, no matter what degree of suffering human beings can show resilience. And it's not that they don't need help. They do need help, right? But they're doing a lot for themselves and they haven't lost their strength and dignity just because they've become refugees. I mean, it could happen to any of us, right? We can all become a refugee at some point. And how would we react? So to me, they're just inspiring and they're showing me how humans can be incredible as well. I think that in Romania here, hopefully what we're seeing is not terribly unique around the world, but I mean, it is pretty amazing to sit back and watch again what the Romanian government is doing and civil society to make sure that they're taking care of their neighbors from Ukraine. Well, Doug Mercado of the World Food Program in Romania, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today and good luck to you and your colleagues in the months ahead. Okay, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to join you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 